We're continuing our series on the gifts of the Spirit out of Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. If not, you can read out of your bulletin. <clears throat> As we go along in this study of, of, of the gifts of the Spirit. And I want to read a couple verses that precede the passage that is in the bulletin. In fact, these things being what they are, I'll probably end up preaching out of those couple verses that precede the verses that are there in the bulletin, rather than the verses that are in the bulletin. Now that I've got you thoroughly confused, let's just read. Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 1. <clears throat> Therefore, Paul says, this isn't in your bulletin. Uh, I'll tell you when we get to the part in the bulletin. <laughs> let's try reading it backwards. <clears throat> Therefore, I urge you, brothers... In view of God's mercy, in the light of God's mercy here, okay? To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, Paul's leading into talking about the gifts here. I've never, I've never understood these passages as relating to the gifts that he's going to talk about later, but they do. So, in light of God's mercy, offer up your body as a living sacrifice, and that's what your spiritual worship is. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Before we're done this morning, I want, you're going to understand those verses. Now he gets to what he's really getting at. Verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Look at yourself in accordance with the way God has created you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so also in Christ we who are many form one body, now hear this, and each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. So we've got different gifts according to the grace God's given to us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him prophesy. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, or uh, yeah, uh, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Let's pray. Lord, this, this uh, auditorium this morning is packed with whether they know it or not, great men and great women of God who are destined to do great things on God's behalf, Lord. And I just pray, God, that this word might be used to come against anything that would tell them otherwise. Praise the Lord. And, and Lord, use it to unleash the reservoir of your spirit that is here to do the kingdom work that you've called us to do. To take aside all obstacles, all thought patterns that would hinder your church, this wonderful spiritual organism, from doing the full work that you've called it to do. In your name we pray. By your authority we pray. Amen. First three weeks we talked about the pneumatic koi. Now we're talking about the chrismata. If you haven't been here this far, thus far, those words sound like I'm speaking in tongues, so I'll tell you what they mean. Pneumatikoi is the word that means spiritual things. The pneumatikoi are the supernatural gifts that come to us that aren't related to our personality, but they're just gifts that God wants to give us to be used at a particular time in a particular place for a particular reason. 
Things like speaking in tongues, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, prophecy, healing, or whatever. They're not related to your personality. Your ability to speak in tongues has nothing to do with your ability to learn foreign languages. These are supernatural gifts that come to you. Many, many other gifts, the majority of gifts that operate in the Christian life, however, are not like that. They are like the gifts that we've read here in Romans chapter 12. And Romans 12 is by no means an exhaustive list. But these are gifts that are more closely tied to your personality. That doesn't mean that they're less spiritual and less important. They are equally spiritual and equally important, but the way God uses them is slightly different. I had an event happen a couple weeks ago that kind of illustrates, I think, the different way that God uses these two kinds of gifts. My daughter is in seventh grade, and, and uh, um, uh, God has given her an ability to run. I mean, she can run like no seventh grader I've ever seen, uh, if I do say so as a proud father myself. Uh, she's running on the White Bear Lake varsity uh, uh, high school team. Uh, and in fact, she's like one of the top five in state in the mile in the 800. She can, she's really just cooks. It's so fun to see her out there, four feet ten, running against these seniors. And she's just burning. Anyways, um, <clears throat> she had a really big meet a couple weeks ago. And uh, um, uh, I had to be out of town. I had to do a, a pastor's conference. She wanted, in particular, to beat this one other uh, opponent of hers, and she wanted to run a 520. Now, a 520 mile is like, at the time, it would have been one of the top two or three times in the state. And I tried to, I kind of said, Danae, you may be shooting a little too high. But she said, no, I think I can do it. So I said, good, go for it, you know, what the heck. Um, OK, I was out of town. I called in to see how she did at this race. And uh, uh, she said, oh, I, I uh, I beat that girl by a half a second, and uh, I got a 520. <laughs> and she really that was blowing my mind. Like, that's incredible. And I was just so proud of her. And then I asked her, what time did you run at? Because her schedule said she was supposed to run at 6.30. And she said, oh, I was right on time. We started at 6.30. And I said, well, you know, Danae, and I'm, I'm always trying to sort of in, trying to in, in, introduce Jesus Christ into her running as sort of a, a platform to talk about her faith and stuff. And so I said, well, you know, at 6.30, and this, this is really what happened. I wasn't lying. I, I, I was able to slip out of a thing I was at, and I just, for about 10 minutes, prayed that you would really run your best. And I prayed that God would just energize you and that you'd have a good time. And I even said, Lord, uh, let her run a 520. It's on her heart to do that. And uh, so, you know, I thought she would go, praise God, look at that. You pray for a 520, you get a 520. <laughs> God is so good. And, uh, I, but I did not pray, nor did I tell her that I prayed that she'd beat this other person. I think that's ungodly, so... The deep inside I want it. Anyways, I'm carnal. Her reaction, though, wasn't positive. Her, her reaction was really kind of down. In fact, she got very upset. She goes, you mean I didn't run that mile? I go, oh, no, 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 no. No, you ran the mile. I just prayed that God would help you do your best. He goes, yeah, but that's, you know, I, I only beat that other person by a half a second, so if you hadn't prayed, I probably would have lost. She goes, I cheated. <laughs> what? What went wrong with this? She's got to be a theologian, man. She asks all the right questions. So, you know, if the prayer did anything, she feels like she cheated. And if the prayer didn't anything, why did I pray? That's kind of what we're you know, dealing with here. Well, I had to backtrack and theologize and kind of do a little song and dance and whatever. It took me about two days to straighten this out. And it was kind of serious. She was really like... What happens if you forget to pray next time? And, you know? 
but finally, I, I explain it to her like this, and, it, and, and believe it or not, it relates to the nature that, of, of, of the gifts that we're talking about here. You see, she was understanding the answer to prayer to be more like a pneumaticoid, the spiritual gift that comes to you that is not attached to your personality or to your natural giftedness. She thought that this was like a supernatural addition to her personality, and so God miraculously allowed her to run a 520 mile when she wouldn't have otherwise run that. What I tried to get her to see, though, that was the way that God answered that prayer was more like the charismata, the, the residential gifts we're talking about. I said, Danae, it's not an either-or thing, that either you did it or God did it. It's a both-and thing. That race was all your doing. You did it, you worked for it, you trained for it, you put your mind into it, and you did a great job, and you get the credit. At the same time, it's right and proper to give God all the glory for the fact that you ran that race. Because there's no reason in the world why you were gifted with those kind of legs instead of being in a wheelchair. It's all God's grace. And there's no reason why you've got that incredible lung capacity and heart capacity and don't have some kind of disease like some other kids have. So God gets all the glory, but you are a gift. It is your giftedness that allows you to run like that. So it's appropriate to take credit for it and feel good about it, but at the same time give all God all the glory. That's how these residential gifts work. They're features of our personality, natural aptitudes that we have, abilities and talents that we have that God wants to use for his glory for the building of the kingdom. And when we do that, when we're open to him, he uses them as gifts. Now I want to just break down what I want to say about these gifts into three things. The first is developing, if we're going to move in the, in, in the operation of these kind of gifts, there's three things that are required. Number one, that we have that we have offered ourselves up to God to be used. Number two, that we develop a mindset that we can be used. And number three, that we discern the will of, discern the will of God as to when, when, we're, when and how we're supposed to be used. Let me break these, these three things down. The first point comes from Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, where Paul says, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer yourself up as a sacrifice. Paul in Romans 9 through 11, the two chapters preceding this chapter, spent a good deal of time outlining in the most beautiful and profound way what God's grace and sovereignty was all about. How God's grace is unconditional. It has no strings attached to it. And then what Paul says is in light of that, in view of that, because of that, you ought to do the one thing that is appropriate to do, and that is offer yourself up as a sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable under the Lord. Everything in the Christian life we need to understand is ultimately a result of God's grace. Amen? Everything in the Christian life is done in response to God's grace. Paul never says, live a holy life in order that you might receive God's grace. Then it wouldn't be grace, it'd be a reward. Rather, what Paul says is, because you've received God's grace, therefore be motivated to live a holy life. Paul says, never, he never says, get sanctified in order that you might get accepted by God. Rather, he says, because you're already accepted by God in spite of your sin, in spite of your rebellion, because of that, therefore respond by living a sanctified life. And so it is here. Paul doesn't say, sacrifice yourself that God might love you, but rather, because God loves you, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And it has to do with the gifts here. Because the prerequisite, if you want to be used with the gifts of God in the work of the, of the kingdom, the one and the most important criteria is that you are yielded. What Paul is saying is this. In light of the fact that God has been so gracious towards us, 
In light of the fact that God has shown such mercy towards us. In light of the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In light of the fact that he's washed us with his blood and rendered us spotless and made us his bride and made us, made us pure and, and without spot or wrinkle before him. In light of all that God has done for us, do one thing in return, and it's the only thing we can possibly do in return, and that's to take our life and to offer it back up to, uh, uh, unto him. As God gives us all, we give our all in return. We surrender ourselves. And it's out of that attitude of sacrifice to God, yielding all to God, surrendering all to God, because you're grateful for what God has done. It's out of that that the gifts begin to flow. It's out of that attitude. Now, Paul says it a little bit different later on in this chapter. He says this in verse 5. He's really saying the same thing, surrender yourself unto God, but now he brings out an implication of it. He says, we belong to Jesus Christ, right? And belonging to Jesus Christ, we belong to his body, right? And belonging to his body, he says, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to one another. We belong to one another. What he's getting at here is this. Your salvation belongs to you. Your salvation is God's gift to you that is yours. You never give away your salvation. That is yours. You're destined to live eternally with the Lord. But if you understand how you were saved, if you understand the grace that went behind it, that salvation, you'll see, entails a vocation. It entails a responsibility. And the responsibility is to offer yourself up as a sacrifice to the Lord. And that entails offering yourself up to one another, knowing that your life is not your own anymore. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to his body, and therefore you don't belong to yourself. What defines you, in other words, if you understand your salvation, what defines your being, the most important thing in your life, the purpose, the reason why you're still here on earth and weren't just raptured up to heaven the minute you got saved, is that you might follow Jesus Christ's example in pouring your life out to others. And the way you pour your life out to others, which is your central defining thing, you're defined in terms of your response to the grace of Christ, the way you pour your life out to others is the way in which you are gifted. Think of it this way. The purpose of the eye isn't just to enjoy its eyehood. It, it, the purpose of the eye is to be the seeing for the whole body, right? The purpose of the finger isn't just to enjoy being a finger. The purpose of the finger is to be the picker-upper stuff for the whole body. The purpose of the heart isn't just to enjoy being the heart. The purpose of the heart is to pump for the whole body. And so it is in the body of Christ. If God has given you gifts, if God has given you talents, the, the primary purpose for those gifts, the primary purpose for your organizational skills, the primary purpose for your compassion, the primary purpose for your willingness to serve, the primary purpose for your leadership abilities isn't for you to invest it in yourself and make a lot of money and build a nice house and to get a nice car. That's the pattern of the world Paul's talking about against. And it's okay to use your gifts to survive and make a living. We've got to do that. But the primary reason why you are you, the primary reason why you've got the gifts that you've gotten is that you might use those gifts for the building of the kingdom, for the outreach of the kingdom, for the building of the, uh, of the church and the body of Christ. That's your primary reason for being, to be a gift to others. Your aptitudes, your abilities, your talents become gifts when you pour your life out for another. The gift... Really, now if you think about it, and this is kind of a different twist, but the gift, ultimately the gift of the eye isn't for the eye, it's for everyone else. And so also, the gifts that Paul's talking about, we say we have the gift of encouragement. 
But understand that that's not a gift towards you because you're not the one who needs the encouraging. If you have the gift of encouragement, that means that you give the gift of encouragement. The gifts are not ours. They're only ours to give away. You know, when you get a gift on, uh, at your birthday or at, at Christmas, it belongs to you. You get it. It's yours. You can have it. You can do anything you want with it. You know, no one, has to take, no one can take it from you. It's yours. Mine! Okay, we got that. I hear it all the time at my house. Mine! It's mine! These gifts are not like that. These gifts only be become gifts when we give it away. It's a contradiction in terms, in, in, in a biblical sense, to say that you're gifted but not doing anything with a gift. I can have a gift of $100 that I want to give you, but if I don't give it to you, it's not a gift to you, is it? It only becomes a gift when I give it to you. And so it is with us in terms of the body of Christ. Paul presupposes that every member is plugged into the body of Christ and has a role in the body of Christ, and you become a gift to the body of Christ, and you become a gift to the kingdom work when you do what is natural for you to do in a way that becomes a gift to the people who need you to do what you have to do. Did you follow all of that? When you, when you see a need, thank you, when you see a need and meet it, you become a gift to that. So Bob Tratz has a gift for singing, but it's not so he can enjoy it, it's so you can enjoy it and get blessed by it. His gift of singing becomes a gift to the church when he sings. The person with a gift of encouragement becomes a gift to the depressed person when he can encourage them. And the person who has a gift of mercy becomes a gift to the person who is under condemnation when, when they bring their mercy to that person. And the person who is a leader becomes a gift to the church when they do their leadership stuff, when they motivate or orchestrate. And the person who has a gift of administration becomes a gift to the church when they can administer and so on and so on and so on. The gifts are only gifts to the degree that we give them away. That's why there are gifts. The point of the matter is, is that we all have gifts to give, but you've got to know that the purpose of those gifts only kick in when we find a need and meet it, when we give it away, when we're operating with this mindset that we don't belong to ourselves. The reason why you've got the talent and the intelligence and the know-how and the heart that you have has got nothing to do with what you can benefit by it. It has to do with what God can use you in, in terms of the ministry of the church. It starts with this attitude of saying, God, I'm available to be used. I sacrificed all. I surrender all. My life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you, and therefore it belongs to whatever you want to do with it, to the church. I am yours. The second thing that Paul says here is that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Transformed by the renewing of our minds. Be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And when you're transformed, he says, then you'll see what is God's perfect and good will. What's he getting at here? He's saying this. What, and, and this is just a biblical principle that is so important, but we're not going to preach on it this morning. But he's saying that, what transforms you is what's in your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The church spends so much time trying to fix people's behavior. That's not the problem. The problem's deeper than that. The problem's in the mind. Paul says, see yourself a certain way. If you're going to be using the gifts, you have to offer up yourself unto God, but you also have to see yourself, understand yourself, put it in your skull, put it in your cranium, make it a part of your self-identity, a certain, a certain mentality, and that is that you are, in fact, gifted. And you are, in fact, called with a vocation. Many Christians, I'd even go so far as to say most Christians in Christendom do not really believe in the core of their being that they are ministers in every sense of the word in, in just the same way that professionals are ministers. 
I don't think most Christians believe that. I don't think that most Christians understand that their most important thing in their life is the ministry that God can use them with at their workplace and their families and their neighborhoods or what have you. Most Christians don't discern what is God's perfect will for their life because they have bought into the pattern of this world, a pattern that tells you that the reason for your gifts, the reason for your intelligence, the reasons for your talents is for you to, buy, is for you to use it to get money and get comfortable and get a good house and get a good car. Most believers don't understand that they are employed by the same boss that the professional ministers are employed by, and that is Jesus Christ. And therefore, most Christians don't believe that they are really gifted. They don't believe that they really have a calling. They really have a ministry to carry out, and that is important. And because of that, because most believers have bought into this traditional mentality that the job of the religious guild is to do the religious stuff, the job of the professionals is to do the religious stuff, and your job is to support them. Because of that, most Christians throughout Christendom never experience the incredible kick you get. I mean a good kick, the charge you get when you're used by God. When you are walking in the Spirit and you say the right thing at the right time, you see a need and can meet it, you begin to be a finger through whom the, the blood flows and the nerves begin to operate and you're connected to a brain that tells you when and how to move. And only then does a finger really get to be a finger. But most believers are in a situation where they're like amputated fingers. They've got the ability to be a finger. They look like a finger, but, but they're not attached to the body. And therefore, they never experience the flow, the joy, the power, the dynamism, the reality of what Christianity is about. A finger is supposed to be on a body, and it's supposed to be for the body, but if you're not for the body, involved in body work, you never experience that kind of joy. A really highly critical person, and I'll show you a gifted person who's not doing their gift. Mm. It's, like, it's kind of like this. I, I have trouble in it being in a church in a worship service if there's a drummer screwing things up. Now, no one else can notice it, but I notice it because I, I, I know how to drum. And so it grates on me. But if there's a good drummer there or even just an adequate drummer there, I can just kind of let go. Now, there are probably drummers out here who are really good, and you're grieved by the way I play. Well, there you go. But so they notice the things that get done. You notice what is your giftedness to do. You notice it, but they don't believe that they're supposed to do it. They think that's a professional's job, so they see the need, but they don't do anything about it. But what they do do is criticize the person who doesn't have the gift, who's trying to do it. So you get frustrated, critical Christians, and I feel sorry for believers who never, who live their life as amputated members. They've got all the ability to do it, but they never get attached to, to activity. I feel sorry for believers who never find their niche in the kingdom. I feel sorry for believers who never move beyond the pew-sitting mentality of Christianity. And I feel sorry for believers who, who, who are just addicted church hoppers who are always looking for the best show in town. Because honestly, until you plug in, until you get involved, until you begin to do kingdom work, until you begin to get attached to the mind that, that, that runs the organism, and until you become a finger that can be used by the mind and through whom the blood flows, you'll never experience the full dimension of God's joy and power and grace and peace and transformation. It happens when you get involved, when you plug in, when you become a part of the body. Becoming a part of the body, become a part of the organism through which the blood of Jesus Christ flows, and that's when the reality happens. And this is what the Bible calls worship. Amen? Your spiritual worship is when you get plugged in and start doing your finger stuff, your nose stuff, your eye stuff, your ear stuff, whatever your role is. Start doing it, and that the Bible calls worship. What it tells us is that it calls it spiritual worship. Paul puts on both words there. It is spiritual worship, not just worship. It's spiritual worship. 
And that means that there is no task in the body of Christ that is so low that it is not the most God-exalted form of spiritual worship that could be. We sometimes think that worship is just a matter of here, you know, singing these beautiful choruses. And the worship this morning was wonderful. I love the worship this morning. But just as beautiful to God's ears is the worship of somebody sweeping the floor upstairs. It's the worship of somebody helping out in the nursery. It's the worship of somebody bringing comfort to a crying child. It's the worship of somebody bringing a word of encouragement to the person who needs encouragement. It's the it's worship of someone giving leadership to people who need leadership. It's the worship of the people up there serving coffee when there are people who need to have a cup of coffee. It's the people. It's the worship of the people setting up and tearing down all the stuff that's here. It's the worship of somebody who has a sick neighbor and, and fixes them supper and brings it over, being a witness to the love of Jesus Christ. It's the worship of somebody who helps out the neighbor who sprained his ankle by mowing the lawn. All of that is worship. There's no task so low that if it's not done to the glory of God, it isn't an act of worship. It's all beautiful. It's all worship. Whenever the body of Christ is doing its individual God stuff, its individual thing, you find your niche and get plugged in, that is as pure and as unadulterated and as beautiful and as sweet-smelling worship as you're ever going to get. Find your niche to plug into. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? And that brings me to my third point. Paul says, right, nutshell, Paul says that when we surrender, we yield our lives to Jesus Christ in response to his grace. And when we walk with the mindset that, in fact, we are to be looking for needs and meeting those needs, we walk with the awareness that we're ministers, this is our job, we walk with the awareness that we're gifted. When we're yielded and aware that we're gifted, you will see your Role. You'll see your gifts. It will be obvious. You will, in fact, test and approve God's perfect will for your life. But the key is being available to be used and wanting to be used and starting to act on it. When you see a need, move towards it and begin to meet it. Don't just stop by seeing it. If you stop short of action, you never really find out what your gift is. It's like this. If you didn't know anything about the human anatomy, all right, and you were looking at a corpse you still wouldn't know anything about the human anatomy. If you didn't know what, it, what the purpose of a finger was, you'd never find out by looking at a corpse because corpses never use their fingers. Uh, you, you, you couldn't tell what the purpose of a nose or an eye was because it's not operating there. And then it's dumb analogy. Oh, that's how it is. You only begin to find out what your gift is when you begin to step out and 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 Start doing the stuff that we're called to do. If you look at a live body, a body that's running and jumping and doing the ordinary stuff that live bodies do, you immediately see what the purpose of the various things are. You understand what a finger does by looking at the finger and what a nose does by looking at a nose or having a nose. Uh, and understand what, what the purpose of an eye is by just looking at how live bodies, healthy bodies, use their eyes. And so it is in the body of Christ. When we plug in, when we get attached to the body of Christ, no one needs to give you a job description, a portfolio, a mandate, or, or what have you for you to know what your gift is. You'll know your gift by, noting, by noticing what you notice. You'll, you'll know your role just by the virtue of the fact that you're yielded to God and, and want to be used by God. It's kind of like this. If you have a gift of administration, you're going to notice how disorganized we sometimes are around here. And what Paul is saying is, move towards that. Don't just notice it and criticize. That, 
If you notice a problem, you're probably supposed to do something about the problem. We always notice er things in the area of our giftedness. You notice there's disorganization? Move to bring order. You notice that a person or some people are kind of confused? You have a gift of wisdom? Bring clarity to that situation. A person with a gift of mercy has an eye to notice. Just out, out, notice up in the fellowship lounge or notice uh, at, at your workplace or notice in your neighborhood. You notice people who are under condemnation, who are really feeling condemned, who kind of walk like this. Move towards them. Move out of your comfort zone and become a gift to them by giving your gift of mercy, your gift of encouragement, or your gift of compassion. People who are teachers notice right away how, how people have some screwed up ideas and it leads to wrong consequences, and you have a burden for that. Do something about it. The reason why you notice it is because God invariably wants you to do something about it. A person who has the gift of hospitality, you notice people who are always alone. You notice that they stand up by themselves there. Don't stop there. Because you don't belong to yourself, you know what? You belong to them. The person with the gift of hospitality belongs to lonely people. And the person with the gift of encouragement belongs to depressed people. And the person with the gift of mercy belongs to shamed people. And the person with the gift of service belongs to people who need service. You notice how stressed out our nursery workers are, don't you? You notice that. What Paul is saying there is don't just notice it. Move towards it. Make yourself available. And here's the kicker. Here, here's where it starts to get radical, so buckle your seatbelts. Because this is... Paul, when he talks about these gifts, Steve Van Sickle pointed this out to me yesterday. Paul just says, let the one who has the gift do it. You got a gift of mercy, do it. You got a gift of prophecy, do it. You got a gift of teaching, do it. You got a gift of compassion, do it. You got a gift of hospitality, do it. Do what comes natural. He never says, he never says, first clear it with the professionals. Now think about this. If this place is going to bust loose the way God wants it to bust loose, there's no way in heaven or anywhere else that we would have the ability to keep up with you. And if, 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 if you're going to wait around for us to develop a program for you to use your giftedness in, we are going to be going a billion times slower than we otherwise could go. Don't wait, don't think that you need to have the okay of a religious professional before you start being merciful. Or the, the, the okay of a religious professional before you start exercising the gift of, gift of hospitality. When you see a need, the time for you is now to meet that need. Move towards that. Be available now. And you don't need us to okay it, to sanctify it, to give a little e pluribus onum over it or, or do a little ritual or light a candle or to come up with an agenda or come up with a scheme or come up with a program down the road. Or One of the things that has slowed the church more than anything else that slowed the church is the fact that we have many times people in authority, spiritual authority, who think that authority means control. And so if I don't have my cookie, my hands in every cookie jar, if I'm not involved in every ministry, if it didn't come from me, if it's not my idea, if it's not my program, then you can't do it. Well, do you realize what a tiny bottleneck that is for the life of God to flow through? The reality is this. You're the ministers of the church. You're the workers of the church. You're the body of Christ. And you can hear from God as well as I or Paul or Steve or Mary or Barry can. And your prayers are as authoritative as, as my prayers. And God wants to flow through you in as much God, the way God wants to flow through me. God wants to use you like God wants to use me. But the point is, you know your giftedness. You see needs that we don't see because you're gifted in areas we're not gifted in. If you see the need, you meet it. It's your job. It's your ministry. And our job is simply to try to catch up with that. 
to try to enable that, to try to facilitate that, to try to teach about that and encourage that, and to do our gifts in terms of the body of Christ. But the church is you. The ministers are you. That's where the whole thing is. The church is wherever you are. There's times when, according to the giftedness of the staff, we have to organize things. We have to coordinate things. Sometimes we need to confront things because there are people who have an idea of what their giftedness is, and it's not their area of giftedness. That happens sometimes, and sometimes we need to come in, and it's part of our job to say, you know what, uh, have you thought about this ministry and, and kind of you know, steer things a different direction? We need to be involved, but that's very different. Our job is not to say what God's supposed to do. Our job is to, say what God, to see what God is in fact doing and to support it and come behind it. And see, this makes a revolutionary difference in the church. To some of you, it sounds like chaos. Wait, wait a second. Because you've always thought the pastor has to be involved in everything. I don't want a Bible study to take place in this church unless I know about it firsthand. It's like... And so this sounds like a prescription for chaos. But now think, for, think with me for a second here. I know you're hot and so am I, but think with me for a second. If it feels like chaos, it's probably because you've been trained to trust man more than God. You see... To think chaos would ensue if this thing didn't have a head. All right? The body, the fingers would be doing all sorts of crazy stuff, and it would all be uncoordinated, you know, all going all over the place. But thankfully, there's a brain here. Not much wouldn't mind you, but there's a brain here, and the brain can coordinate the body. So also, if we believe, if we really believe, and don't just say, but we really believe that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, then we believe that he communicates to his body, the members of his body, and it is his job to get this body functioning like a holistic organism. And it's the job of the Spirit of God to flow through us and bring the life of Christ in a graceful way through each one of us according to our giftedness. And if that's not true, if, that, if we're believing a lie, then chaos will ensue. But if that's not true, then I want chaos because if this thing isn't real, let's blow it up now and get on with our lives. But if it is real, what you'll see, praise the Lord. But if it is true, then what you'll see is people doing their giftedness, and there's a beautiful kind of orchestration that goes on here. Now, not everyone hears God just right, and so sometimes there's little glitches here or whatever, but you see the body of Christ beginning to function like the organism, not the human organization, but the organism that it is. The head of the church isn't me. It's not any religious guild person up here. It's Jesus Christ. And you don't have a boss. The pastor is not your boss. The pastor is supposed to naturally lead and motivate and train, but your boss is Jesus Christ. Take your marching orders from him. Know that you have a direct pipeline, a direct access to him, and let him cause you to move according to his job description for you. And when that happens, when that happens, and we've rarely in life seen this happen because usually we've seen human organizations, but when it happens, the church becomes an organization, I mean an organism that isn't limited to this building but rather begins to spider itself out throughout the Twin Cities. And you become, the church is you. You are the church. You're the minister of the church. You're the body of Christ. God's life flows through you. When you walk with the understanding of who you are, walk with surrenderedness, and live life to see a need and meet it, the church goes wherever you are. You are the church. This here on Sunday morning is simply the time when the church comes together. Okay, this is simply the time when we worship God together and proclaim the word together. But this ain't church. Your workplace is church. Your family is church. Your neighborhood is church. Your friends are church. Your small group is church. That's church, and that's where the kingdom work comes. And the way the body of Christ expands is by us walking with the awareness that Jesus Christ wants to work through us. See a need and meet it. 
Let the life of God flow through you in a grace-filled way. Start becoming a finger and an eye and an ear that's attached to the body. When you're attached to the head, you know what? You're attached to the body. You're attached to the body. And now we have, instead of six people doing religious stuff for 1,200, we've got 1,200 people. Next year will be 2,500 people doing the stuff of the kingdom. You multiply it a 1,000 times. And the, the body begins to replicate itself, begins to multiply. People get saved. Our light is no longer hid under a Sunday morning bushel. I like that. We no longer hide our light under a Sunday morning bushel. We take it out, put it on a hill, the hill of our workplace, the hill of our neighborhood. The kingdom work gets done. Let's stand. You are, if you're a believer here this morning, whether you know it or not, you are a great man of God, and you are a great woman of God, and God has a high calling for you. It may be an obscure calling, but the truth is, and whatever comes against us is a lie of the enemy, the truth is that you are gifted, you are equipped, you are called, God wants to flow through you, and you've got great things to do for the kingdom of God. You are the church. As we go forth from this place, let's let God's spirit, who he promises to dwell in the church, flow through us and carry this out. Father, Father, I just thank you for such gifted people, Lord God, for, for lavishing on us the gifts of your kingdom. I pray, God, I know that I'm up against traditional religious teaching here, and I'm up against our culture's thinking as I proclaim, Lord, that we are all ministers and priests to you, the Most High God, and that we all have a ministry wherever we're at. Lord, and there's just a ton of lies that have infused us that tell us that we're not gifted, that we're not okay, that we're not worthy. But, Lord, we call those, those things for being what they are. They are lies, and we come against them in Jesus' name. Help us, Lord, as we walk out of here to have the awareness that you've not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, Lord. And let that thought, God, transform us to be the ministers, the priests of God that you call us to be.